0: On today's episode of the Keto Camp Podcast, we discover how to achieve metabolic flexibility with Dr. Naisha Winters.
1: I'm always cautious of talking about exogenous ketones because everyone's like, oh, it's our human nature, right? Like Well, screw that, I'll just have my cake and eat it too by taking exogenous ketones. So please, you will never get as good results with just exogenous ketones as you would doing it really the old fashioned way.
0: I'm a certified functional health practitioner who's on a mission to educate 1 billion people. I've been obese for most of my life. From rock bottom to the top of the mountain, I am passionate about studying ancient healing strategies like fasting and the ketogenic diet and curating this information on the KetoCamp podcast. My goal is to bring you the thought leaders in this space. My name is Ben Azadi and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, host of the Keto Camp Podcast, best-selling author of four books and the founder of Keto Camp. I'm excited to welcome back Dr. Nasha Winters, where we discussed metabolic flexibility. You might have heard Dr. Nasha Winters on a previous episode of the Keto Camp Podcast, episode 12, where we discussed keto for cancer, fasting, autophagy, and busting a lot of the cancer myths out there. We'll drop a link for that episode to listen to after you listen to today's episode. Today's episode is gonna talk all about metabolic flexibility. You know, right before we hit record on this episode, an interview, I found out that a friend of mine passed away just hours before I hit record with Nasha. and we started the conversation about that. How do you deal? How do you process the loss of somebody you love and adore? We get into her story which is so inspirational. And we talk about death, which is an important topic that's not really spoken about. And then we get into things we can do to extend our lifespan. We discuss the metabolic versus somatic theories of cancer, which is going to explain very well how the DNA and the mitochondria and cardiolipin and the physiological processes that occur in the body leading to disease or health happens, what is affecting cancerous cell replication, and what you can do about it, the importance of metabolic flexibility, and why we don't want to eat so often, how fasting and keto could be a game changer for preventing disease, how exogenous ketones could actually help during radiation, the best time to use that, what levels of ketones are optimal for radiation and therapeutic ketosis, We're gonna get into Dr. Naisha's favorite inflammatory blood markers to get so you could be proactive, not reactive, and so much more. Before I bring her on the show, I wanna take a minute here to get to the Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from Will titled, The Best. Thanks for all your knowledge. I like that you are super clear and you explain slowly, and that is something very good because it's easy to understand. I'm from Argentina, I speak Spanish, and when you speak, you are clear, and I like that. Don't ever change that, and thanks again. Will, that's awesome, man. Thank you so much. Uh, Gracias, I love that you're listening from Argentina. I have a lot of Argentinian friends here in Miami that I grew up with. I love the Argentinian culture, the food, the dynamics, and I appreciate you listening from Argentina. If you have not left the Keto Camp podcast a rating or a review yet on Apple Podcasts, please do so right now. It really helps the show grow and expand and reach more people. And you never know, I might read your review on the next episode. Hey, I want to let you know about a seven-day Keto Kickstart challenge that I am launching on May 17th. This is a free challenge, which is valued at about $1,500, where for seven days, I'm gonna teach you exactly how to do keto, how to do fasting for everlasting results. We're gonna get into the difference between clean keto, dirty keto, simple keto hacks that help reduce inflammation inside the body, how to pair fasting with keto so you can 10X your fat loss results, the best way to get into ketosis, advanced keto strategies, and we're gonna have sponsors for this challenge where you could actually win a whole bunch of great products, supplements, Keto-Mojo machines, and much more for free. We're gonna have leading experts in the keto and fasting space come on to the challenge, and you're gonna be able to ask them your questions. We have confirmed Dr. Benjamin Bickman, Dr. Mindy Peltz, Cynthia Thurlow, Dr. Rebecca Warren, Dr. Daniel Pampa, Thomas DeLauer, and a few other special surprises that will take place during this seven-day keto challenge. It is completely free, and it's for those who are tired of losing the weight and having it come back, those who are confused by nutritional conflicting information, and those who want to reclaim their health and vitality and energy for good. You can get registered for this free keto challenge by heading to ketocampchallenge.com camp is spelled with a K, ketocampchallenge.com, learn more about it, get registered for this free seven-day challenge, and it's going to be one of the greatest keto challenge to ever take place. Join me, Alina, the Keto Camp team, and those special guests, and those participating in the challenge will have the opportunity to win thousands of dollars in retail value of amazing supplements and devices for keto. And fasting. Again, this is a free seven-day challenge. Head to KetoCampChallenge.com to get registered for this free event. All right, let's bring on, let's welcome back Dr. Nasha Winters. Dr. Nasha Winters has been on a personal journey with cancer over the last 27 years. She is a leading authority. On cancer research, ketosis, fasting, metabolic flexibility. Her quest to save her own life has transformed into a mission to support others on a similar journey. Dr. Nesha travels the world to explore integrative cancer clinics, vet cancer protocols for research projects. She speaks at conferences all over the world and meets with colleagues to help them apply metabolic approaches with their patients. Dr. Naysha offers doctor-to-doctor consultations and intensive mentorships for clinicians who want to more deeply understand the metabolic and integrative approaches to cancer. She wrote an incredible book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, which you could order today on Amazon. We'll drop a link down below. So here is Dr. Naysha Winters. Dr. Nasha Winters, welcome back to the KetoCamp Podcast.
1: Oh my gosh, and you've just become so massively, like, famous since we last did this together. I'm honored to be like the small little small little pebble in your big, big beach.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You've been so supportive, a great friend, great mentor of mine ever since the start. So I thank you so much. You inspire me all the time with your great work and all the things you continue to do. So the feeling is mutual. I'm grateful to be here with you today. And we haven't had a conversation. Last time we spoke was about two years ago, episode 12. We're like on episode 250 right now. So uh, I'm grateful to have you back here. And I'd love to start right here. You asked about, uh, I did a Facebook post earlier today about a friend that I lost. Uh, his name is Mo, rest in peace Mo. Mo is a CrossFit coach at the gym I used to own and he really helped me become more disciplined with my fitness and he was a great friend and supporter. And I don't know how he had passed away, but I was on my Facebook and then I saw the post. Now I knew he was in a coma since Sunday for three days and I had been praying for him, but I w- had been praying that he would get out of the coma and survive and I really believed that he would and then I saw a post right before I was going to go live, by the way, I saw a post that he passed away and, and it just, it, it put me in, in a freeze moment and I knew I had to go live and I had to reframe myself and get present for the live stream. So the reason I bring this up is because you're somebody who's in the, you're in the cancer research space and you probably have dealt with this a lot with the lost, uh, a loss of a patient or a friend of a patient. How do you go about dealing with that, grieving with that, and not letting it really suck energy from you. How do you process the loss of somebody you love and adore?
1: That's such a good question. Again, I'm so sorry for your loss. I, too, saw your post right before going on and even asked, so I'm glad that we're having this conversation because there's only a few things that are promised to us in this lifetime. Being born is one of them and dying is the other. And Even though we can sort of intellectually understand that, um, it's definitely still very painful If it's somebody close to you or even someone not close to you or someone who just touched your life or even an instant that leaves, you feel that. You know, you feel that imprint in there. And, you know, I will tell you as a little girl, this is interesting, we've got time here. I was five when my grandfather died and my grandfather and I were incredibly, incredibly close. I remember so many details. You know how the early memories are just so crisp and specific. I remember everything from the feel of his fingers, his hands, he was a farmer. I remember these overalls he wore. I remember the smell of his skin. I mean, such details. And when he died, I went into a deep, deep, deep state of extreme trauma to the point where my mom was like, I don't know where this is coming from because it was my first experience with death and dying. And I was like, ter- Like I was screaming it's like as they were literally putting him into the ground. I was like, he can't breathe. He can't breathe. I mean, I can remember having this experience. And so for me, from about age five until about age 13, death was very traumatizing for me. And I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to watch movies about it. The, where the Red Fern Grows book still traumatizes me to this <laughs> day, the loss of dogs. like It was something that really shook me, um, a core that made me very terrified of death and, and Actually, really hate death. When I was um thirteen, I lost my best friend um to an aneurysm, and I had a dream the night before he died that he died, and I was hysterical the next day with my mom that Mom Jeremy, Jeremy died. She's like, No, he, you know, he didn't look. He's outside, and you know, playing soccer, and crazy that the very next day I wake up and go to school that day and start hearing that he died, and I was fully in belief that he had. It was a rumor. People were making maybe people were hearing about my dream and you know making fun of me because that was the state of mind I was in. To realize that he did, it was just this other huge bolt in my body about how the impermanence of life. And I was really, I was 13 for cry, like I was just stuck in this place where I was so convinced of death and how permanent and scary and awful it was. And then I met my own diagnosis, my own mortality right in the face at 19 years old. And ironically, in that time that I was diagnosed, I was working in a nursing home. And there was a woman in the nursing home that I cared for. And when you work as a CNA, a certified nursing assistant in a nursing home, you go through the training of what you're supposed to do, but you also go through what's known as post-mortem care training. So how to tend to a body after they passed. And I was so freaked out about that concept. And yet I was like so certain I would never see this in my work in that environment. After two months of being in that nursing home, I was on duty and I stopped by the room of this woman who was a matriarch of our community and uh she'd been in a coma for a couple weeks and I went to check in on her and as I came in she'd been completely out and I put my hand on her chest and kind of stroked her cheek and never had met this woman because she had been pretty much in a coma since I started working there and she opened up her eyes and looked right at me the most crystal blue eyes you can possibly imagine and she had this beautiful smile and then she turned her head up towards the ceiling and at that moment I felt this energy move through my hands my hand was on her chest and I saw this little flicker of light go out uh, through my hand through the air and I'm like I'm tripping you know, like there's something happening here. Yeah. She didn't exhale her last breath. And what came over me in that moment was first of all I realized exactly what had happened. I'm sitting there as the sun's going down, and I had this moment of deep peace, and this shift. It was like something just came over me in that moment. And the head nurse walked by at that time and she peeked her head in. And she said. Did she leave like kind of like understanding? Because I'm just sitting there and I said yes. And she said, did you see the light leave her? And I mean, the fact that someone said that to me, like a total stranger, that nurse, by the way, just passed away last year. So this woman was very instrumental in my own healing and understanding. And it was just this moment that suddenly I had a very different understanding of death and dying. And fast forward, I, in medical school, I thought I was gonna be a midwife. And so I delivered 36 babies before I decided that sleep was more important to me than bringing children into this world. Good decision. Um, I very much a sleep needed person. And the other thing that happened in 2012, I was sitting among a group of of women that I was doing a, a cancer retreat with. And I realized at that time that I had brought 36 beings into this world. And I had also personally sat with and ushered 36 beings out of this world. Wow. And it was this other moment for me. And that wasn't that long ago, almost a decade ago, that I just realized this sort of continuity, this balance in the world. And so I give you that whole framework and that it has been a journey for me to really come to terms with mortality, death and dying and have a different understanding around it. It's not something we're taught in our culture, right? But it's something when you work with chronically ill people with cancer, you're going to see it and you're going to see it often. And so I learned to understand that death and dying look exactly the same. They're just an unbelievable passing through a particular threshold and they are not as scary and ugly and dirty and frightening and weird and taboo as we've made them out to be in our world. And so I don't understand or even pretend to understand why someone leaves earlier say your friend who, you know, the CrossFit instructor for Cry Out Loud versus someone who's had a long, ripe life and is deep into their years and is just like taking taking their exit in their 90s, or even babies or little kids that I've worked with with cancer in that process. So I'm always kind of learning and working with it and recognize it is part of our world. But I think if we also talked about it more in our culture, we'd have more space to process the real feelings that come up for all of us. And they're unique to each of us. So I know I brought you on this long roundabout journey, but I just see it as just this powerful threshold. And I see it as a very normal process of life and that it doesn't have to be as scary and dark on the other side or, you know, to watch that process happen. So I think that, you know, when I see that, I always just kind of felt this peace and realizing that there's something, there's something better and bigger that we pro- couldn't possibly know in this humanly physical body form that we currently inhabit.
0: That's a beautiful, beautiful take on it. And I remember being a kid, and I used to think maybe when I was like 12 years old, like my parents are not going to be around one day, and I, I would, I would actually get really depressed thinking about them not being along uh, on this planet anymore with me. And I didn't have anybody to speak to. Like you said, to your point, nobody really taught me what death is. I kind of learned it from movies. And I re- remember being depressed, like thinking about one day, my parents are not going to be here, but I love the way that you shared it. It's a transition. We enter this world and then we tra- our soul transitions into a different world. Where that is, I don't know. Will I ever meet Mo again? Uh, maybe, possibly, you know? So it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thought. And it's a perfect way to start the conversation because I want to talk about metabolic flexibility, cancer, keto, and this stress bucket, this mitochondrial bucket that you call it. And I I have a different way of explaining it. I talk about taking less hits, right? Like when you look at professional athletes, Naysha, the best ones in the world, uh, Tom Brady, Dwayne Wade, Kobe Bryant, What they all have in common is is that towards the second half of their career, they changed their game. They changed some of the things they were doing to extend their lifespan or extend their career. So what are things we can do to extend our lifespan and take less hits with all the hits we're taking here in this day and age?
1: Oh my gosh, what a great, I mean, first of all, that's such a clear analogy and really beautiful concept and people can really relate to that. And to your point, it's like we have you know, most of us have some type of resilience just to our age. You know, and our our fountain of youth resides in the health and wealth of our mitochondria. All right, and so if you came into this world with your mitochondria bucket sort of polluted and damaged, which sadly and unfortunately is happening more and more today, we have a lot of of new beings entering this planet or becoming part of this planet that are already really really compromised and then for those of us the longer you've been here and the longer you sort of neglected that bucket the more damage you've done to those little mitochondria which makes you age faster and be much more susceptible to a lot of a lot of chronic illness processes including cancer which happens to be my area of expertise but ultimately what you said is true is that most of us sort of just assume that we're healthy until we're not and that's what I find over and over in my world is people always say to me, well, I was healthy until I got cancer. You've heard me share this with your tribe as well. And I'm like, that's what's so strange to me is that we have this amazing ability to, over, to compensate when we have something that's off. Right, And so if something hurts, we kind of maybe favor the other side. Or um, one of my patients says it's like putting a sticker over your uh, check engine light on your car dashboard when you're like, oh, that's subtle symptom. You can kind of justify it away or just say, oh, it's just me getting older. Oh, I must have pulled this in my workout. Or, you know, maybe I can't drink the way I did in my 20s, you know, things like that. But what we find is that we need to start assessing and addressing our terrain way before we get sick, way before the alarm bells are way too loud to capture our attention. And so the way I start to change the game, change the routine up in myself and in the patients um, that I serve and the doctors that I teach to serve other patients is I teach them how to assess that bucket. How to assess that terrain so that people aren't hit unaware aren't caught off guard aren't surprised if they have a certain condition or a predisposition to a condition and so that it's always way better to be preventative or to head things off at the past early on versus waiting until it's engulfed the house in flames and our medical system today I know you are really a fan of these concepts, and our medical system today is unbelievable And that it only focuses on the house engulfed in flames. It only wants to deal with disease management and not disease prevention and not true cultivation of deep, optimal health. And so we can't know, like just because you eat well and diet and exercise, that's not enough on the planet today. And what people perceive as eating well and doing proper exercise may not be genetically matched to that individual, maybe not metabolically matched to that individual. And so we have to do a little deeper dive and assess this. And there's all kinds of cool basic blood tests, but also more functional testing and analysis. And even down to like your simple, reach down and touch your toes, check your flexibility for instance, or that good old sit-stand test. I think I talked about that in one of the lectures as well, that you can literally check your longevity with how easy it is for you to cross your legs, sit all the way down on the floor, and then from that position, stand back up without the help of arms, elbows, knees, et cetera. The more contact points you need to help your body back up off the floor, the lower your longevity. So we really need to use it or lose it. And we can help people start to do all kinds of really provocative testing and questionnaires and and self-auditing of what's really going on. So I'm wanting to cultivate a culture of curiosity that wants to understand what's going on in their body even when they're at their best, like that's why I love the biohacker community, is they're like, I feel great, but can't I feel even better? Mm-hmm. And yet our culture is like, I feel okay, at least I'm not dying. You know, like we, it, there's like, where's the gap? Where is the gap in this? Where do we, you and I, and those that we hang out with, where do we fill in that place of, great, I'm not actively. Dying or diseased, but I'm also not well. That population is who I'm very interested in helping support so that they don't become the person that I help shut um you know shuffle out of this world.
0: Well said. So when it comes to this mitochondrial bucket, everybody has a different size bucket, of course. What are some of the top things that fill this bucket up that lead to a diagnosis of a cancer?
1: You know we kind of started the conversation out there uh, you know right in the beginning we kind of hit heavy and dark and deep and a little bit dark maybe for some but you'll notice in my book metabolic approach to cancer i kind of leave the mental emotional chapter at the end of the 10 drops in the bucket because if i started there with every person they often go running screaming into the hills not ready to quite face that but ultimately our life experiences, our emotional intelligence, our uh, resilience to stressors, our resilience to traumas, how we view the world, our perceptions, our beliefs, very much influence the content of that bucket and the expression of what comes out of that bucket. And it's often the last thing we want to deal with. It's always way more fun to deal with the tangibles of the diet and the lifestyle and the supplements and the the things, right? Mm -hmm. But it's that non-tangible even in the work of people like Dr. Kelly Turner, famous sociology researcher, who wrote a great book called Radical Remission. She followed a group of thousand patients that had quote unquote spontaneously gone into remission. And what she did in her studies over a decade is realized it wasn't spontaneous at all. It was very intentional, very thoughtful, and very willful on what they did. And seven of those nine factors that influenced whether these patients would have spontaneous or radical remissions had nothing to do with the physical and the tangible Mm -hmm. it only had to do with the mental emotional spiritual aspects of their livelihood of their community and so that is really critical we really underplay that in our culture or we just tell someone oh go manage your stress or do a little meditation but we really that's like scooching the furniture around the living room Right. And so we want to do more than that. And then the other influences in the bucket that are really we just can't get away from. And thank God you're Mr. Keto camp. Right. But we have to look at our metabolic health. We have we've changed the game so drastically in such a short period of time where in 1850 we were basically all what we consider today low carb. And our bodies knew how to move in and out of burning fats and burning sugars. And it knew how to be a hybrid engine very easily. it wasn't a, We didn't have to work at it, it just was. You'd finish dinner, you'd go to bed, you'd get up in the morning in ketosis. So it was like, that was life. And then you'd get on with your day and what carbs you ate during carb season, you know, during the big harvest season, you burned off, you know, you used them appropriately. But today, we don't. We just put it in and it goes nowhere. And then it goes into fat storage. And then it goes into basically putting a brick on the accelerator pedal of burning sugar and sugar only. And our bodies have forgotten how to burn fat, how to be that dual engine. And that gets us somewhere the research shows that 70 to 90% of all cancers, of all cancers have a very glycolytic driver, meaning sugar is the problem. I would say all of them at some, to some degree at some point in time have it. But the studies even show like, let's just be super conservative and say only 70%. Well, probably it would be worth it to lower your carb intake and work on your metabolic flexibility to get back into that dual hybrid engine again, no matter your diagnosis, no matter if it's a stage one or a stage four, but also the chronic illnesses that you guys all talk about, the Alzheimer's, the cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes, autism, Asperger's, all of these are on the same spectrum of mitochondrial metabolic imbalance and loss of that metabolic flexibility which you know we when I talked in that conference less than 12 percent of Americans and likely 12 percent of anybody in the Western world today is metabolically flexible That's so we, right we've 88 percent of us are really literally dying to get this information and to change the game to change the next half of their life whether they were 12 learning this, or 72 learning this, it's never too late to change it up and to become metabolically flexible at any stage of the game. So between the emotional aspect, the dietary aspect, the toxicants we're constantly exposed to on the planet today, and then the stress response is key because stress is everywhere, but our response to it and our body's sensation of it is what gets us in trouble. And ironically. Chronic stress also leads to chronic cortisol, which leads to chronic insulinemia, and all of these things undermine everything. So even if you're eating perfectly, but you're constantly revving the engine of stress or you're terrified of the death and dying process like I was for all of those years, had I stayed in that deep fear of death and dying at the time of my diagnosis, I would have died because we've been able to show that stress alone perpetuates uh, metastasis and definitely suppresses the immune system. Those were two critical factors I had to work with in facing my own mortality. And so it's okay to have that moment of shock of your diagnosis, but to stay in a place of fear is never gonna serve you. It will only serve the cancer to keep growing.
0: Mm. And it's it's so important to mention that in this day and age, the year 2021, because if you turn on the television and turn on specifically mainstream news, you're going to be living and stuck in fear, which is a surefire way to wipe out your immune system and develop these diseases if you're stuck in that fear situation. I want to take a quick break here to share with you about the dangers of taking fish oil. I know, shocking. I was somebody who took fish oil every single day for years, and then I came across a ton of research showing the dangers of consuming fish oil. I immediately found an amazing product called Pureform. Pureform is a plant-based omega. And the cool thing about Pureform is that it is uniquely processed with nitrogen to preserve it and make sure it does not oxidize. These essential fatty acids are cold pressed and you get the proper balance of omega-6 and omega-3. to apply a $4 off coupon that is ben ben and the number four international shipping is available okay let's go back into this episode of the keto camp podcast So we talked about the mental emotional, so important. I love that you brought that up. Something that I practice on a daily basis, self-love and gratitude. Dr. Bruce Lipton has incredible research showing that, right? That your thoughts, uh, a negative thought, a toxic thought, a hateful, fearful thought could actually send sound waves to penetrate the membrane, tell the DNA to to produce specific proteins that lead to disease. So powerful. But if you think about the opposite, your thoughts could... Positive thoughts could actually heal the body. So I love that you brought that up and you wrote about it in your book. By the way, we talked about your book on the first episode, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. We're going to put a link for it in the podcast notes. This is a must read for everybody who hasn't read it yet. Toxins, the stress response, and then nutrition, of course. So many people, like you mentioned, twelve percent only are only metabolically flexible. So okay, let's let's dive deep into a little bit of the cancer, right? Because cancer could be a controversial topic, and there's a lot of, as you know, more than anybody else out there. There is a a, a metabolic versus somatic theory of cancer. Could you break that down?
1: Sure. So the somatic theory, which has been around about 1920, is the concept that our DNA accumulates damages to its its structure, okay? And then mutates and then becomes a reservoir for cancer, becomes a trigger or, be, or sets off a, a path to a cancering process, wakes up all these oncogenes, et cetera. That's this concept that basically we take a certain number of hits over time and then it just escalates and that it becomes a metastatic process. And what the researchers even today, like Dr. Vogelstein and Dr. Tomasetti out of the Harvard sort of camp out there, I mean, they still have had a couple papers come out in the last few years, basically saying that cancer is just a bad luck game, that it's a Russian roulette, and that we just have to sort of accept that our DNA is just as it is, our genes are as they are, and you're gonna either get it or you're not. I personally do not subscribe to that belief system, at least in its entirety. Like, I'm not saying it doesn't it have some role, but they sort of say, that's it. End of story. You're kind of screwed no matter what you do. It's just about a Russian roulette game. You're powerless. And powerlessness is also an incredible toxin, okay, we also don't talk about much. So then let's talk about the theory that also was merging during the same time as the somatic germ theory, or just somatic, excuse me, somatic gene theory, was that of metabolic theory of cancer. And this was Otto Warburg's work, also in the nineteen late 19 teens and 1920s, who later won uh, a Nobel Prize for his work on looking at sort of these fuel sources that cancer cells preferred over the healthy cells. I'm kind of simplifying this for, for everybody, for yeah. myself as well, because I like to keep it simple. And basically it was like, wow, it's interesting in that we keep kind of looking at the dna damage and saying that's where it begins but he's like let's back it up a bit further it begins before that so where we started to learn and what our research has shown us over the past 100 and a handful of you know 100 years and a handful of months is that mitochondria are sort of the the genome protector and if they're functioning well and optimal if they're taking in the right fuel sources from our thoughts to our food, to the air we breathe, to the water we drink, to the people we hang out with and their influences on us, to the electrical you know, fields around us, to the light exposures around us or lack of light exposures around us. All of those things go into these little, I almost think of our mitochondria as like little solar panels, but they're taking in a lot more than just light, but they're also taking in the light of your food so, you know, so it is, it, it does come down to this kind of quantum physics aspect here, but it's taking in a lot of information. And it's in that information that tells those cells to, you know, to, to heal or those organelles to heal, to repair, to be more efficient or less efficient, depending on the signaling pathways that are being provoked by the nourishment and all those levels we talked about coming into the body. Once those go off, and the, the cytoplasm in which those little organelles are floating around in, like the little swimming pool that the oh, mitochondria right. are living out in, once it becomes a little mucky, like someone hasn't been skimming the bottom, you know, and once it starts to accumulate, that's when the mitochondria become way less efficient. They start to stop stop breathing. It's called cellular respiration. They start fermenting. This is different than, say, your sauerkraut on the countertop. Right. Basically, it's like an inefficient metabolic process, an inefficient energy creation process starts to happen. When that happens, we don't induce cell death, a process known as apoptosis. And when we don't take out the garbage of these fragmented, broken, depressed, ill, toxic, boggy, inefficient, ineffective cells, then they can switch then they can metabolically switch over and start to request and require a different fuel source and start to steal energy resources from the body and start to use most preferentially things like sugar. Mm -hmm. So that's where if someone has been eating crappy all their life and then their body switches into that and they listen to the really bad advice of their RD nutritionist at their oncology office who says, no matter what, eat anything you want, just don't lose weight. We are actually perpetuating, we're driving the Thelma and Louise car off the cliff even faster than ever before when we make those offerings. What we're able to do with a metabolic approach to cancer is understand that cancers can come in and out of, of existence with support to the terrain around those cancer cells. And then if you can kind of clean up that swimming pool and clean up the energy sources going into the mitochondria, you can shift or prevent that malfunctioning maladapted energy exchange and keep the mitochondria healthy which in turn keeps the dna expression both your epigenetic expression as well as your genetic expression much more on track and able to sort of handle the use of the hits the assaults um, that are coming at them way more effectively efficiently more resiliently than ever before and that's where i see a more hopeful vision of cancer and that yes the genetics still come into play but after we have stopped taking care of our terrain or after the terrain has taken many assaults unbeknownst to us or even known to us. Mm-hmm. And that it also implies that there's something we can do about it to help correct those imbalances and create a better outcome you know, for all.
0: Well, yeah, the last five minutes were like a masterclass on mitochondrial health. I hope that you could just rewind if you're listening to the podcast or watching the YouTube video, rewind it and get that again, or or maybe a couple of times, because that was so good, right? You're talking about, are you referring to a senescent cell, a cell that's no longer living? And then what happens is it it switches its uh, fuel source to sugar, and then can it potentially duplicate and then replicate into other cells?
1: Absolutely. And then it doesn't have the ability. It's like, I don't hear you. I don't see you. So it just keeps replicating. Whereas our ability to kill off those damaged or dysfunctional or gone rogue cells is under the complete guidance of our mitochondria. So if our mitochondria are unhealthy or damaged or inefficient, or even loss in number and quantity. So for instance, adipose tissue has far less mitochondria than muscle tissue way less. So if you are someone who's moved into about the 25% body fat, not BMI. Mm-hmm. BMI is BS. Totally
0: different, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> well, like body fat content about 25%, you are starting to basically make a bigger storage tank for all of those toxic drops in the bucket we've talked about, that then start to accumulate and those toxic storage units have less and less and less and less mitochondria. Whereas you get your body fat down and you build up your muscle, you actually start to increase your storage and efe- effectiveness and efficiency of your mitochondria. Mm. So that's just one example. Or for all the folks out there who were wrongfully blaming lipids, you know, fat for their high cholesterol and then got on statin drugs that depleted their body of the most important antioxidant we have, CoQ10, that is all about what your heart muscle needs to survive. Your heart muscle is the other largest, like, organ and tissue of mitochondrial. You know, like a densely packed mitochondria. And when people take a statin drug, they basically like pilfer the mitochondria out of the heart and make it much more vulnerable. So great, you went lower in the cholesterol, but you're also damaging the very organ that you were thinking you were protecting by taking that drug. Mm-hmm. And so these weird, like weird we're it's just so upside down you know and so that's the places like i'm all about like let's take what mitochondria you have and make them stronger let's work constantly on mitogenesis making a new fountain of youth so things like intermittent fasting cryotherapy huge powerful tools to bring on new mitochondrial function. You know, Those are some ways to do it. Those are the things that we don't talk about. We can't put a price tag on those in the pharmaceutical industry and say, hey, we're gonna get rich off cryotherapy or get rich off a recommended dietary or non-dietary approach, if you will. And so it doesn't get talked about. It gets shoved to the back and we keep trying to find the pharmaceutical answer to the ancient wisdom that's been around us and available to us all along.
0: Mm, The innate intelligence that lies within us. We just have to harness it and do our job and remove the interference. I want to get to some of the ways to activate that innate intelligence through hormesis, which is what you were sharing, which is a fun topic. Before we get to that, I want to understand for myself personally. So we have have the cell. We have the membrane, this lipid bilayer around it, which is about 50% fat which communicates to the DNA, and there's this whole orchestra going on in there. Now, I would like, for me, for my clarity, what role does cardiolipin play in this lipid raft, right? <laughs> and how, you know, from my understanding, when the innate intelligence wants to kill a cell, apoptosis, it'll remove the cardiolipin and the cell goes into apoptosis. Is that what's happening? Well,
1: that's part of it. There's, wow, well, this, this gets kind of... Mm get the longer so because the other p- things that are playing here there's the cardiolipin, there's the cell wall membrane there's the choline in that cell wall membrane there's also this concept known as danger response
0: cell danger response yeah
1: danger response there which i know you guys all talk about probably here too then there's this omega-3 omega-6 fatty acid This like um moiety of this balance of our f- essential fatty acids that all play into this and so it's not as simple as saying you just take out the, the you know, cardiolipid, like it's, oh, this is a tough one. I'm trying to think of how, how do I we need
0: a good analogy?
1: <laughs> I know. I'm like thinking about like, I've really liked when I've seen images um, at some of the ancestral health symposiums where they use the sort of the, which we call them the lipid rafts or whatnot, where right. they use those. It's like, you need to be able to shunt things into and out of like fats in and out of because fat likes fat. So fats attracted to that lipid membrane and can travel through and carry important nutrients that are packed inside these little fat cells to get them into the mitochondria or into the other cytoplasm that the mitochondria are swimming into the other organelles there. That's one component. And if you've got this loss of fluidity to that membrane and you don't have enough rafts and you don't have the right kind of fats you basically oxidize and stiffen that membrane and you lose another when we're talking flexibility you lose another essential flexibility of discernment of what gets to go into our cellular energy factory and what gets to be taken out as garbage into the removal system and so ultimately what happens in this sort of discussion to keep it simple is that that wall becomes inappropriately reconfigured it becomes too rigid the goods can't get in the bad stuff can't get out and it backs up over time am i overly simplifying that for you no
0: exactly makes sense so the toxins can't get out the nutrients and oxygen can't get in and then there's a problem
1: and that's where like, so like to take this into the, like the cardiolipin and the omega-3, omega-6 piece is that we get really excited. We're like, oh, I'm having all my flax oil and I'm drinking my almond milk, my my omega-3, you know? Well, yeah, you're getting omega-3s and those things, but flax oil, for instance, goes incredibly rancid very, very quickly and makes that cell wall become even more rigid, much quicker than say butter, for mm-hmm. instance. Okay.
0: Which is a saturated fat.
1: Exactly. It's like, you you just need that gooiness, And then When you're looking at, say, the omega-6-3 ratio, the more omega-6s we have, the more problems we have with cardiolipin, the more problems we have with cell membrane, flexibility and fluidity, the the more inflammation we have in general in the body. And we've gone from a time where we were anywhere from 1 to 1 to 4 to 1 ratio of omega-6s to omega-3s to today being somewhere 20 to 26 to 1. Omega sixes, yeah. and so just to give context, I just did a talk on another site the other day about get excited. We're like, oh, look at this almond milk. I'm going to use almond milk I can't do dairy. So I look at it, it's like it's two thousand to one omega sixes to omega three. I didn't know
0: that. <laughs> I didn't know to that. One. When I
1: went in, I was like, oh god! Like this is, and everyone's like thinking, oh, I'm doing great. So I'm using almond yeah. flour. I'm using almond, I'm using almond butter. I'm using not,
0: not to mention it also has um oxalates in it too, almonds.
1: I'm big time and, and it's like oh my word so there's there's that stuff so we we wow. are thinking we're eating well and yet ironically the things that are the best ratios are things like your fat, saturated animal fats mm-hmm. right so even olive oil is a 12 to one it's getting better yeah like good cold quality fish right. cold deep cold water fish is going to be your best
0: or like grass-fed beef, right?
1: Grass so what's amazing, like grass-fed beef versus grain-fed beef. It is a 12 or wait, a seven, no, a twelve point one to one ratio of grain fed beef, which is still, I mean, it's comparable to at least your olive oil, but a grass-fed beef is closer to a one to three, depending on the type of grass and the season one to one ratio. That's about as perfect and primal as it gets to that moiety we just talked about to help keep that flexibility down at the cellular membrane level, not just at the how we're burning our fuel sources level. So that's really fascinating to me. And these kind of myths that we have to keep talking people off of the cliffs of like just this diet or just this, or use this food or go really excess on this, because it's not we're we're contriving it in a way that, again, does not genetically match us and gets us into a lot of other problems. Like, yes, you absolutely can get your protein from pulses, but you also take along with that a lot more carbohydrates. So if you're someone who has a normal TCF7L2 SNP, for instance, and you have plenty of amylase and you have a good, robust metabolic system, then you can get away with more carbohydrates and you can get away with cycling in and out of lower Carb and higher carb, and do beautifully if you're in that metabolic flexibility. But if you're someone who was born with a lot of hiccups in these arenas and you're still trying to be, you know, a high grain intake per the RDA nutrition recommendations of get your five to 10 mm-hmm. servings a day, you're likely stiffening up those membranes, changing the metabolic fuel sources of your mitochondria, and setting yourself up for early aging at the cellular level, not just on the external level. And so these are the conversations that we we don't get to have because no one wants to fund these studies but it's just your basic biochemistry and so I'm, I'm married to a biochemist so we just literally talk about these things all of the time and he makes it sound so much easier than i do i understand it very clinically he understands it he understands the bench i understand the bedside so usually we're like a, a like a three-legged race that together when we do presentations it's really fun so you have to get him on sometime. <laughs> Yeah,
0: that would be I, awesome i would love to
1: he's brilliant and so but those are the things i think you know to your points like we, we need to to sh- change the conversation up here. And like, how do we know how metabolically flexible we are? Where do we even start assessing that? And I don't know if you dive into that. I would assume you yeah, do, do. the work you do,
0: but share, but I want you to
1: share, you know, like I, I very simple, I tell folks or I ask folks actually, I'm like, so what does it feel like if you go longer than four hours without a meal? And right there, most people will say, well, I can't. I I gotta have something every two to three hours. That's the majority of the patient population I've worked with in my career. And then I say, well, let's say they can do easily four hours. Then the next sort of flaming hoop is, how do you do after dinner? Do you need something before bed? Do you need a snack? Do Do you crave something sweet? Do you crave a dessert after you finish dinner? Are you satisfied at the end of just a regular meal without a dessert? Most people also say no. They usually want a sweet treat after or a little after eating a you know, bowl of ice cream or a little snack before bedtime. That's also a clue of metabolic inflexibility. And then I say, are you able to go finish dinner and have nothing but water until you break your fast 13 hours later? So let's say finishing dinner at 7 p.m. and not having anything but water until 8 a.m. Are you able to do that and how comfortable is it? Again, vast majority cannot do that which is shocking to me. I've been doing this for so long now that I can easily, easily, because I've worked into it, I can easily go. I've done a 10-day water fast, yeah. right? I've done longer fasts with things like broths and you know things like that, but I can easily do three, five days without even blinking.
0: If you're anything like me, you probably spend some money each month on your supplements, but what if you're still tired and you just don't feel 100% well? Well, there could be a deficiency. What if there was a way to know if you were actually absorbing your supplementation or not absorbing, and maybe you're taking too much of something? Well, what I'm bringing you today is a chance to accurately test all of that. In this case, I'm talking about upgraded formulas, upgraded hair test kit, and consultation. And once you uncover these hidden deficiencies, you could get rid of these symptoms you might be experiencing that might be affecting your thyroid, adrenals, or much more. Upgraded Formulas is a very cool company. I interviewed Barton Scott, who is the founder and chemical engineer who helps craft all their supplements, and they have this really cool upgraded mineral deficiency analysis. So say goodbye to blood and urine tests, which typically indicate short-term results. Hair is the best identifier, and you could get that hair from your head, armpit area, or even pubic area, and you'll receive a consultation with a member of Upgraded Formulas to help discuss your results. And it's very simple. Collect your hair sample, send it in, and get your results fast. We've worked out an exclusive deal, Keto Camp Podcast listeners, to receive 10% off your order. Head to UpgradedFormulas.com, use the coupon code BEN10 at checkout to get your hair mineral kit, and any other supplements that you could find on their website. That is upgradedformulas.com. Use the coupon code Ben10. The first time I interviewed you, I think you were on day five of the water fast, too. By the way. Yeah,
1: I, I came to you guys on that. That's like, and I do that really routinely, three to five days every month without fail. And I do a big ten day, or you know, once or twice a year. Just water just water and i and salt i put a lot of salt into my water mm-hmm. as well um, and i take magnesium those are really my two go-to's but that's that's about it and most people can't you tell them that and they just look at you you know we're so petrified not to eat and yet for me and you know back in my story because i had a bowel blockage in the beginning and because i was so filled with with fluid, known as a malignant ascites I literally had no place to put food or beverage. And so whatever I put in would come back out or cause excruciating pain. And it wasn't coming out the other end either. So for two and a half months, I could manage only tiny sips of water and herbal tea. That is probably what saved my life all the way back then. It still took us another nearly 30 years to get the research to back why that was effective for me, despite the fact that we've had data from Dr. Moreshi in 1909, showing that simply fasting would cytotoxically reduced the size of a tumor, so shrunk mm. tumor size. So when Dr. Longo's work started coming out in you know, 2010, 12, 13, I was so happy to see this because he's like, then if you take fasting and you pair it with chemo, then you get like a synergy, like a double whammy, and you protect those healthy mitochondria from the damaging effects of that chemo or of that radiation so that you're also not making more vulnerable. I mean, that's the nature of standard of care for cancer is that it causes further metabolic mitochondrial destruction. That's its job. And yet what we're learning and what makes me sad that it's not already standard of care, despite the fact that we've had almost a decade of research to say it's or longer to say this is good, is that we could be making standard of care work better, better outcomes for the patient, better quality of life for the patient, lower recurrence and progression of disease and not needing all the side drugs that cause even more problems, like constipation and high blood sugar, et cetera, that they give along with the chemotherapy to deal with the side effects of the chemotherapy. The fasting in and of itself is dealing with those side effects. So Mm -hmm. it's just so weird to me that we've come this far, and yet I still cannot even tell you. If I get one doctor out of 100 that I consult with or consult on a family with who tell me what the experiences has been with their oncologist, who completely full heartedly supports them doing fasting around their chemo, that's a good number for me. So I would like to see that be one in 10 in my lifetime. Wouldn't it be great if it was every single one?
0: Oh, but gosh, yeah.
1: I so it's crazy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I love that. Uh, and that's the way it should be. There was a study, maybe you know the study that showed, what was it? A 70 less than 70% chance of reoccurring breast cancer when the patients fasted for 13 hours or more each day.
1: And the craziest part about that they didn't ask them what are you eating they could have been like feasting on ding-dongs and ho-hos right? right i mean it could have been that but they were simply taking a break for 13 hours or longer every day and their recurrence rate was far less now you've to remember in standard of care even the american cancer society suggests that set up to 70 percent of patients who've had cancer will have a recurrence so you want to do whatever you can to prevent a recurrence after you've gone through that little ride so to me it's like if you could just get all patients after chemo if nothing else get your hands on everybody after chemo and radiation and surgery and fast them for 13 hours a day wouldn't that be incredible to see what would happen at the five-year rate and all the different things we're looking at. I think it would change the game quite drastically.
0: Absolutely. And 13 hours is not even a long time, right? You use your sleeping window. It's very easy to do. Um, you know, So speaking of fasting, what are some other things and tools we have available to us to support the mitochondria, to create this mitophagy, mitogenesis, and this hormesis response? What are some of your favorite ways to do that?
1: Well, we've got kind of do the big ones. Fasting you know, is, is one of them. I also really love, for folks that are... Due to this that are pretty metabolically broken who are the ones who say oh I really struggle going more than a couple hours without food I start to do things like just slowly lowering their carbohydrate intake and slowly upping their quality fats and then bringing on things like herbal teas like cinnamon adding cinnamon to everything cinnamon is excellent at stabilizing blood sugar It also has a natural sweet flavor to it so a lot of people like can give sweetness to things that otherwise doesn't have it so if they make a homemade whipped cream for instance sprinkle a bunch of cinnamon on that and it kind of makes it taste like it has sugar in it, when it doesn't have, you know, any additional sugar. So things like that are little fun hacks of just out of your tea world. Of course, tannins from black tea and coffee also can stave off hunger. So if you are a CYP1A2, you know, AA or CC fast metabolizer of, of caffeine, and you don't feel bad when you drink a cup of coffee, then having a cup of coffee or a cup of black tea, um, even if you add a little fat to it, like a little ghee or coconut oil, or even MCT oil or butter, um, can really be a powerful strategy to offset that hunger and help you over some of the hurdles. But it also helps you give a break to the GI tract and help your body literally sweep out you know, the debris, make room for more. That's a big one. The other thing that um, I think is also really powerful in the herbal world is berberine. Berberine is yeah. A big, big herb. I mean, it's used. Started... Yeah, are you
0: using it? I started experimenting with dihydroberberine, which is a different variation of it. Yeah, so it's interesting. Yeah.
1: What do you notice, just out of curiosity?
0: Well, I'm about to get a CGM to really test it. So I'm just having it. If I know I'm going to have a big meal, I'll just take a capsule, but I'll get some good, like, anecdotal evidence when I get my CGM. Yeah.
1: I love a little in of one, but I find that that can also help give people a running start. And then from my really aggressively, metabolically broken people, we might have to bring out the big guns like metformin. Even if someone has the CYP2C9 star three SNPs that make metformin, not a good long-term process for these folks. I can at least use it short-term to get them ahead of the curve a little bit, maybe enhance their other therapies. Maybe I'll put them on that through radiation because radiation will not work if your insulin and insulin and a1c are elevated so it might look like it works initially but it also makes for more rogue more aggressive cells more and more progression and yet I've yet to meet a radiologist who does a full glycemic panel, insulin panel, Mm -hmm. insulin growth factor, A1C panel on any of their patients. Luckily, thank God we have a few like Dr. Christy Kesslering, we've got Dr. Brian Lewinda, we've got Dr. um, Colin Champ, some of these radio oncologists out there, Dr. Lori Hersher. these guys are out there who are absolutely checking their patients, getting them more metabolically flexible and kind of gearing them up for radiation fasting them through radiation having them take exogenous ketones 20 to 30 minutes before they get into the radiation I wanted
0: to I wanted to ask you about that the exogenous ketones and radiation explain more about that please
1: That so means this is the place where I I'm always cautious of talking about exogenous ketones cuz everyone's like oh it's our human nature right like well screw that I'll just have my cake and eat it too right, by taking yeah. exogenous ketones so please you will never get as good results with just exogenous ketones as you would doing it Really, the old-fashioned way. Amen. Yeah, exactly. Like (laughs) definitely, like especially people who are new to going low carb or going into ketosis or needing to get primed for a particular chemotherapy or radiation therapy that really does depend on having a low glycemic and low insulin state to have better outcomes, then we want to give them a running start. It will also really nip it in the bud that horrific carb blue carb withdrawal that a lot of patients experience. And it can also help quench that hunger in the beginning until your psychology catches up with your physiology. It can be a nice crutch. And then once you become fat adapted, you typically don't need that. But even my fat adapted folks, I like to have them take an extra little punch, a little extra pressure, an extra little push in the system to even drive those ketones higher in the midst of radiation because it's going to be that much more protective to the healthy tissue around it. And basically kind of think of the ketone, exogenous ketones as being like the Trojan horse that carries the radiation right into the cancer cell and protects all the healthy sort of members of the community around it. And that's a really powerful strategy Um, Especially like for instance, brain tumor patients who in the beginning, when they have initial surgery and maybe initial radiation, acute radiation to deal with a very, you know, pretty critical situation, a lot of times they have to get on a short burst of steroids, which just basically make it almost impossible to get into therapeutic ketosis or even nutritional ketosis for some people. So the exogenous ketones have a huge role there. And then if I have someone who's like kind of fallen off the wagon and they need to get back on it, like maybe they went on a family reunion or something. kind of went on a bender that definitely helps them ease the transition back you know so they can kind of dust off their pants and be right back on the horse again because i think that that helps because sometimes the psychology to get back on track is really hard to overcome and i find that the exogenous ketones can help a lot but if people have a good mental reserve I tell you the fastest way to get into ketosis is a three-day water fast. Now, if you don't have any other major health issues, you know, nothing out there, work with a medical provider and and analyze that that's okay for you. But that can really up it. It might be kind of painful to, you know, like so I tell people, keep it simple. I schedule things like massage and time off work and lots of naps and like get a bunch of Netflix or something and just spend those first two days like being ill, like just being kind of like the flu, like you would take care of yourself if you had the flu. And then by day three, you're sort of like, the lights are coming on. Mm -hmm. Can I? going and if folks are doing well and we're testing and their ketones are coming up and their glucose is going down and they're taking in enough electrolytes and hydration and they're feeling great then i'm okay if they keep going i wouldn't want them to go longer than five days without medical guidance but it's just pretty incredible that kind of that first the hardest part of those first couple of days the first day is all psychological the second day your physiology is screaming at you mm-hmm. the third day most people pop through it and are like this is pretty cool And then once you get more seasoned at it, it becomes easier and easier. But I do have patients who are set to do a three-day water fast every month or a five-day around their chemo, and they will take exogenous ketones on day one and two just to help them still function and feel pretty good. And not everybody feels crummy, so I reserve that for those who know that they might be climbing a pretty high wall.
0: I love the routine. So a question right there is, for, for the exogenous ketones for somebody going through radiation chemotherapy, what level of ketones do you want them to be at?
1: ideally i want them in therapeutic which is above three on the keto mojo so 0.8 to three is considered nutritional ketosis that's kind of like where all of us can kind of easily go in and out of normally some of us get there more readily than others if i fast for just 16 to 18 hours my ketones get into the twos my husband has to fast for three to five days to get his that high Hmm. everyone's different so don't like beat yourself up if you're kind of in that zone for people to get into a level of three and higher, you either have to be very metabolically flexible or you have to be really taking in a ton, like a 90% of your diet fat type of thing and or taking exogenous ketones. So if I take a little hit, of I like the ketone esters. If I take a little hit of those, like a five milligrams or whatever of that, on top of being in my kind of nutritional ketosis, 16 hour state, I can pop myself into nutritional or therapeutic ketosis pretty easily. So it's just kind of interesting that everyone, be your own in of one, be your own Mm -hmm. living laboratory and experiment for yourself and see what you notice. Cause I've also played with it where I've taken the whole recommended dose. And for me, it overshoots me. I get into like the nines, the tens. I don't feel good. It like, it just feels chemical in my tissues and I don't need to push it that hard, but other people may have to take the whole container before they feel anything or before Mm -hmm. their numbers shift on the keto mojo. So it's so unique. The CGMs for my cancer population can often add more insult injury because it's so variable. Just the stress of the diagnosis and all going to all your treatments and all the different medications and all the things. I mean, so many drugs for cancer cause metabolic inflexibility. Mm-hmm. Right? They're just known, like all the SERMs and the aromatase inhibitors, so the tamoxifens and the arimidex and all this, they cause fatty liver and diabetes, right? The Pickray, the PIK3CA drugs that are out there, targeted drugs now for cancer, directly black label says it's going to give you diabetes. And yet this is a metabolic pathway that is all about, like if someone tests positive on their tumor assay, that's the best treatment of that PIK3CA pathway is a ketogenic diet, mm-hmm. is a low glycemic diet. And yet the very pharmaceutical drug we give it actually creates more of the problem. it's Crazy. Extended.
0: Oh my it's gosh.
1: Nothing buts, my friend. And so, yeah. So those are the places where I want to support my patients to have their best chance at having a good response to the, to the therapy and not having to go and do that dance over again in the future. You know. And again, ultimately, I'd love for everyone to start exploring their own metabolic health way before they have any kind of diagnosis. So we talked about just those questions you asked, but also get an A1C get an insulin level you should be healthfully under five um, for your insulin and under five for your a1c all of us if you have cancer you probably need to be a little bit lower on your insulin and insulin growth factor because that is a definite growth factor in more than 70 percent of cancers Mm -hmm. so we need to suppress that a little bit further but for your best prevention and maintenance of any condition keeping your a1c under five is probably a really good strategy
0: Yeah. What about some of your favorite inflammatory markers?
1: Oh my gosh. Well, my trifecta, my patients call it, that's the C-reactive protein, which is also, by the way, prognostic for many things. So if you have an elevated CRP at the time of your breast cancer diagnosis or colorectal cancer diagnosis, you have a poor prognosis. We saw that same prognosis for entering into the hospital system with COVID, for instance. That Mm kind of comes back to the cardiolipid thing you just talked about because CRP initially was a marker for cardiac health and cardiac inflammation.
0: Right, it still says it on the on the lab corp results.
1: Exactly, and so it's checking that inflammatory process at that layer we were talking about a while ago. It's pretty fascinating. It's a particular thing we're looking at. The other one is sed rate, sedimentation rate, ESR. Now this one, you know, you'll often see that elevated. It's how fast your blood cells fall out of plasma, out of solution. So if it falls out really fast, that's great. It's like, good, it's nice and smooth in there, right? It's like, it should be under 10. It should fall out quickly. But if it takes a while and they kind of just hang out in the goo, well, that should probably tell you right then and there. It's probably kind of thick and gelatinous and not good. You want flow, You want it to be nice and lubricated and smooth. The higher that number, the more inflammation in the, in the tissues as well. And then the third one, the LDH, lactase dehydrogenase. This used to be part of all of our um, metabolic panel testing until about 15 years ago when some idiot behind a desk said, Let's not run that test. That is the most important test for your metabolic health there is. Lactase mm. dehydrogenase, as the name implies, is part of the good old Krebs cycle. And it literally, as my husband says, if the LDH is high, your mitochondria are off.
0: Mm. What's high? What would you be considered high? What number?
1: And this is the thing. Remember, labs are based on the average of the population. So you don't want to be average. So in the functional optimal range, you want, depending on lab core, you want it under 175 or Quest Diagnostics, you want it under 450. If it's even 176, I'm concerned, or 451, Mm. I'm concerned, right? If you end up having high CRP above one or 0.1, depending on the lab, and a SED rate above 10, and you end up coming back with actually a weirdly low LDH like under 160, get your LDH isoenzymes because sometimes some of us have some particular uh, genetics that give us kind of erroneous or false LDHs. Mm. So I look at them as a collective individually you could google any of them or pubmed any of them and see that even by themselves they're quite prognostic in the cancer world but very specifically when we're looking at them as a collective they literally tell us the health and wealth of our mitochondrial function our metabolic function our inflammatory function our immune function our terrain function in general so for me the trifecta has been far more sensitive and specific than any cancer marker and than any scan
0: Mm, I love that. So I'll put those down in the podcast notes if you missed that. So for LDH, you're saying 160 to 175 is where you want the person to be? Yep. Okay, got exactly. it. Wow, this has been such a masterclass. we got to bring you back for round three. I mean, I could just talk to you for hours. You're just so brilliant and fun. Besides your book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, which I'm holding up on the YouTube video, but we'll put this in the notes down below. Where else can they find your work and just your social media and all that?
1: Well, please look for me on Dr. Naysha Inc. on Facebook, you can also find me under the metabolic approach to cancer on Facebook. On my website, drnaisha.com, I have a great kind of couple little free handouts, including one that's on metabolic flexibility and some of the research that we talked about today and some of the different roads to Rome to achieve metabolic flexibility. So that's there for free. I also have a really cool little free handout that if you are diagnosed with cancer, what are the first five steps you should take before you start to let mm-hmm. anybody? So important. Right. Look, so there's that. And then one thing I want you guys to keep watching for, keep checking me out, get on my newsletter. Things are, some big things are happening. We are hoping to create the first and only metabolic centric, terrain-centric forward hospital in the United States Wow, is bringing in the best of both worlds of what best of what standard of medicine, standard of care medicine can offer with the best integrative vetted therapies from around the world under one roof on one campus, a big beautiful campus where we are showing people how to live in accordance with their genetic match as well as nature around them so that's that's what i'm working on these days including another book coming out this summer late summer early fall on mistletoe and then jess and i are working on an updated version of our book in late 2022 and there might even be another book brewing it depends Mm. on on our energy levels
0: (laughs) oh that's fantastic
1: so yes there's a lot of cool stuff there i'm really excited to see the world of research and the bench experts coming together with some of us out in the trenches of clinical medicine. And we're really finding some beautiful synergy on how can we make things better for all of us.
0: Mm, I love that. I love that you're doing that. The new book, we'll get you back for the new book. And then we'll put everything down below in the podcast notes. Go show Dr. Nesha some love on social media and go check out our website, go get her book. As you can tell, so much information, some great information, Albert Einstein said, intellectuals solve problems, geniuses prevent them. And you, Naysha, empower the world to be a genius and to be proactive, not reactive. And I want to thank you for serving the world, serving myself and my community. And I just love having conversations with you and just you're doing amazing work out there. And thank you. We need more nation Winters out there. So thank you for today. And I really enjoyed today's conversation.
1: And always joy.
0: I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Naysha. I love her. She's incredible. Share this with somebody who you believe could get value from this conversation. Maybe somebody who has been dealing with cancer, somebody who wants to learn about preventative measures to cancer. Go get her book. We're going to drop a link for it down below. Go listen to the previous episode, episode 12. When she was on the show, we'll drop a link for that down below and uh, post this on your social media. Shoot me a tag at the Benazadi and at Naysha Winters, Dr. Nasha Winters. Also, I want to remind you that we have our seven-day keto challenge that's coming up on May 17th. It's going to take place between May 17th and May 24th. We're going to teach you all things keto with special guests, Thomas DeLauer, Dr. Daniel Pampa, Dr. Mindy Peltz, Cynthia Thurlow, uh, Dr. Ben Bickman, Dr. Rebecca Warren, and many other leaders in the space. I'm going to be educating on the platform as well. This is completely free. Head to ketocampchallenge.com. Campus Bell with the K, keto camp Challenge.com. We will also drop a link for you down below. I want to thank you so much for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. You'll hear me on the next one.